All righty. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Jack Sutton. I am a graduate student at Korea University studying international uh, peace and security. And I'm currently moderating this podcast as an intern for the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers. I'm very glad to be joined today uh, with Dr. James E. Platty, who has taken the time out of his very busy schedule to join me today. Uh, Dr. Platty is uh, teaching at the School of Advanced Military Studies, and he was one of the participants at the North Korea Working Group on Cyber Deterrence. Before teaching at SAMS, he was assistant professor with the U.S. Air Force's Center for Dest Strategic Deterrence Studies and an instructor for the deterrence elective course uh, in the CSDS. Prior to joining the CSDS in 2017, Dr. Platy was a uh, an intelligence research specialist with the U.S. Department of Energy, and he has also worked on nuclear counterproliferation in North Korea with the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Nuclear Security Administration. He received his Ph.D. from the Fletcher School and has held research fellowships with the East-West Center, Pacific Forum, the Councils on Foreign Relations, and the Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you for joining me, uh, Dr. Platy. I do very much uh, appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me today. Uh, today, um, yes. I was going to say, before we get started, uh, I, I do have to say this, uh, since I'm a, a U.S. government employee, uh, so everything today uh, is just my thoughts and opinions uh, and don't represent uh, any views of uh, the Army University, the United States Army, Department of Defense, or any U.S. government agency. Thank you very much for your clarification, Dr. Platy. Uh, today we'll be discussing uh, cyber deterrence against North Korea from a U.S.-ROK alliance perspective and how deterrence in cyberspace can manifest in appropriate strategies that the U.S. and South Korea can use to deter against cyber threats and attacks. Uh, to be quite honest with you, Dr. Platy, uh, cybersecurity and deterrence is an area I've only very recently found myself uh, very interested in, mm -hmm. as my main interests are typically in nuclear policies. Um, but doing some cursory research as well, I found that there are some similarities as well. And when looking at this topic, searching through and doing some research on it from a USRK perspective, uh, interesting, interestingly, uh, your name is often the only one that appears. <laughs> so I think I have prime reason to believe that this is very much your wheelhouse and you have some of the most expertise on this subject. So I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. And I'm sure uh, what I and the listeners are able to take away, I'm sure would be very valuable. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to contribute how I can. All right, then without further ado, I will softball my first question to you, Dr. Platy, if that is all right. Sure. All right. So for what I've read, much of deterrence theories stem from nuclear deterrence strategies. Uh, do you think it would be appropriate to look at cyber deterrence through a similar lens? Or should there be a different uh, framework that we approach this from? Uh, so I think that the basic principles of deterrence uh, are still the same, regardless of uh, the field or the threat that you are considering. Uh, you're correct that at least uh, most deterrence thinking or deterrence strategy in the West uh, came from uh, thinking about the U.S.-Soviet nuclear showdown during the Cold War. Uh, and so most of it was applied to deterring uh, the, the Soviet nuclear threat uh, or how to maintain that, the, a stable deterrence relationship 
nuclear deterrence relationship between the Soviets uh, and the Americans. Um, but deterrence in international affairs is as old as uh, civilization, really. Uh, and if you consider it a psychological phenomenon, uh, because deterrence occurs in uh, the mind of the party uh, that's trying to be deterred, the mind of the, the challenger, say. Uh, so uh, the very basic principles of it uh, hold. I think the biggest difference is how you operationalize it uh, and how effective you view deterrence. Um, or how how much uh, how reliant on deterrence you are in your overall strategy uh, in the nuclear realm uh, during the Cold War from the very beginning really starting in 1946 um, American thinkers were that deterrence is really the the pillar that we have to rely on uh, in this new nuclear age and that any deterrence failure is completely unacceptable uh, and there's really no way to defend against nuclear weapons. Uh, and and so we have to rely now on deterrence rather than defense and offense. Uh, in the cyber domain, it's uh, a little different uh, because you can have deterrence failure. And, and similar to conventional warfare in the cyber realm, we see uh, deterrence failure all the time. Uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, nations are destroyed as they would be in the nuclear realm. So I think that's also what I mean when I say you, your expectations on what deterrence can do for you have to be changed uh, and how you operationalize it, meaning uh, maybe what threats you put out there or what you use for denial strategies uh, will change. The, the nuclear realm, of course, was this, uh, the main thing was that we would have an overwhelming retaliatory response uh, that could lead to, you know, deaths of thousands, millions of, of your, your citizens. And so this produces a deterrent effect. Uh, it's hard to think of a similar parallel in the cyber domain, uh, where you'd have, say, an instant uh, death of thousands or up to millions of people. Uh, so that sort of a punishing response uh, isn't going to be uh, credible or as credible in the cyber domain. Uh, so there's different ways that you try to go about it. Um, and and you you also have to realize that you will have deterrence failure. So you need to be then also uh, including good defense, good offense, um, uh, using other measures to maintain overall cybersecurity uh, or advantage uh, in the cyber realm. Hmm. Thank you very much for that. Uh, you mentioned that uh, punishing responses are typically not as credible as perhaps maybe deterrence by denial would be. Would you say that that is correct? Uh, for the cyber domain? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say as of yet, we, we haven't quite figured out uh, what those punishing responses could be mm -hmm. that would be, that are punishing enough to the challenger, to the attacker, uh, to produce a deterrent effect. Mm. Uh, if, if the punishing responses say, you know, uh, if the attack, you shut down uh, some computer network around a power station, we say we'll shut down a power computer network at two power stations. Um, that sort of thing doesn't seem to be uh, punishing enough to maybe stop the, the attacker from doing it. Mm. Um, and And so then I think, uh, you also have to then decide for in-domain versus uh, cross-domain. So what I just said was in-domain, we will use cyber weapons in response to a cyber attack. 
and that, you know, I've said, uh, we, uh, in my opinion, and I think uh, a lot of other people think this, the fact that most cyber attacks don't lead directly to death. Now, if you, you know, disrupted a hospital's operations, maybe someone dies or uh, infrastructure, maybe you have train accidents or, or vehicle accidents on the roads where people die, but it's not the direct result uh, of the attack. It's a second or third order effect. Um, because you don't have that first order effect producing death, uh, I think psychologically, uh, it doesn't seem as punishing uh, to another country's leadership. So then you can consider cross-domain, meaning coming from outside of uh, the cyber, be it uh, kinetic attack. Uh, this hasn't really been done much. Uh, I think the only example that comes to my mind is, is Israel uh, conducting some uh, rocket attacks on buildings where they said Hamas uh, cyber operators were, were conducting their operations. Um, whether that's a deterrent strike or simply just trying to uh, remove capability is uh, maybe in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and again, if, if the initial attack didn't cause death, uh, how credible is it to say, we're going to respond to your your denial of service attack by killing a hundred of your civilians. That seems sort of incredible and maybe not believable to the attacker that you would actually do something like that. So maybe they go ahead with the cyber attack anyway. Yeah. Uh, you can look at legal measures. Uh, and the US government has tried this. Uh, you know, the FBI issuing warrants uh, for the arrest of say Chinese or North Korean cyber operators. Um, uh, of course, the challenge with that is actually getting access to that person. Uh, that person doesn't live in a country or isn't president of a country that has an extradition treaty with the United States, uh, then we're not going to be able to actually execute the warrant uh, to uh, arrest the person. Uh, and maybe if you, you're, say, China and you've got thousands of cyber operators, maybe you say, okay, that's fine. You can take out one. Uh, you can arrest one person and they get replaced. Uh, you know, this was a challenge we saw in counterterrorism where you can take out one uh uh, terrorist and and another one comes in and it's a kind of a network analysis challenge then of trying to find who is the key node that we can actually get uh, that's uh, going to disrupt the whole system uh, or, or there's economic and, and diplomatic sanctions that can be applied to um, but uh, you know I think this uh, the the punishing measures those those are all still kind of being felt out uh, for what could be effective um, but I also think, you know, if the initial attack is is you can recover from it, because, again, if it doesn't cause massive death and maybe it's just you need to, uh, say, reset your computer network or, or do some kind of simple maintenance to get it back online. Uh, for example, the attacks on Ukrainian power networks a few years ago. Um, yeah, it caused some uh, disruption to power supply, but the Ukrainians get it back online, uh, you know, relatively quickly. It's not it wasn't like they were without power for months. Um, so if that's what all you need to do to respond from it, and there's no follow on attack, uh, follow on kinetic attack, um, then I think, uh, you know, the idea of setting very strict punishing response, uh, policies starts to look incredible and you're, you're probably not going to act on them, which makes your whole policy incredible. Now, now the U S government, and I think, uh, NATO as well has, you know, made statements about, we will consider all options, including punishing options uh, in response to cyber attacks that are equivalent to a use of force. 
but it's of course still unclear what that phrase means. What is a cyber attack that looks like uh, the use of force, uh, of physical force? Um, and and you know, at the United Nations or at uh, other sort of uh, world organizations, there has not been agreement on what that looks like either. Uh, so I think uh, while individual countries, uh, uh, I would I, let me restart. Uh, an, an individual country or like the United States or an organization like NATO could just say that, hey, here is our line. And they kind of try to say it. Here's our line. If you go over it, we'll consider using punishing responses. And maybe you don't have to get the other side to agree to the agree to what uh, is the threshold or, you know, is the punishment enough? Uh, but you then try to enforce it to sort of get agreement. Uh, this is similar to a concept called cumulative deterrence that uh, came out of Israeli strategic thinking on counterterrorism uh, to actually uh, hit back uh, at terrorist networks, to, to strike back, to kind of punish, 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 and then maybe take a pause to let uh, that group soak in what has just happened to them and maybe reset their line of where they're willing to do their attacks. So it's not going to uh, deter all terrorist attacks, but it will hopefully reduce the frequency and the scale uh, of the of the attacks. And so you could try and do a similar thing in cyber, where you say this is our our interest. If you cross the line, we we will hit back, and and you start hitting back. Um, but we ha we haven't had uh, broad agreement on that. Uh, and and I also want to uh, clarify. I think there's also uh, a lot of the malicious cyber activity or unwanted cyber activity that we see really on a daily basis uh, is stuff that we probably wouldn't call use of force mm. uh, and stuff that is a lot of just law legal enforcement. Uh, so if it's theft of currency, using cryptocurrency to do black market activities, uh, this is all really a law enforcement matter, uh, which again, though, since it crosses international borders, um, getting coordination across international borders is, is going to be a challenge. Um, but but it, it would fall into that realm. Most of what the deterrent stuff is looking at uh, uh, is attacks on what are called critical networks. Mm -hmm. So networks for your power supply, power uh, system, for transportation, uh, in particular for military or national security networks. Uh, that's uh, mostly where the deterrence is looked at is how do we prevent disabling attacks on those networks. And your law enforcement uh, side is looking at the, the criminal activity. Who now, now law enforcement, if you do enforce laws, that is a form of deterrence. Uh, you know, of course, having a penal code is a, is a form of deterrence because you know what action you, the, the law says you should not do. And if you do it, here is the punishment you will receive for doing it. Uh, that is uh, a form of deterrence. Um, but at the sort of international relations side, we're focused more on those critical networks uh, and deterring attacks on those. And, and I, I don't know if you want me to talk about denial or if that was your next question, maybe. Uh, yes, yes. If I could just have one quick follow up question just to clarify. Sure. So if we take this from a perspective of uh, recent developments in North Korea's um, cyber threats and attacks, we can see a lot of them recently have been on financial institutions, particularly since the start of the pandemic. Um, 
and from what I've read, it's less on uh, attacking other nations' militaries and other critical critical infrastructures, mainly focused in financial institutes, which you mentioned would be more so an issue of law enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. So from that sense, do you think that it would be necessary to develop strategies to deter against this particular action with a form of punishment, or do you think that this falls into that realm of only a law enforcement issue? Um, yeah. So like a lot of things in practice, of course, it gets messy because, mm-hmm. right, because North, yeah, a lot of North Korea's malicious cyber activity is that uh, sort of financial criminal activity of them trying to just steal money or using uh, either state currencies or cryptocurrencies for black market activities. Uh, and they have a lot of slush funds where, you know, a lot of this activity gets um, sort of uh, swept under in uh, some of their legitimate economic activities. Uh, so it becomes hard to, you know, legally determine. So which part of this account is the legal part, and which is the illegal account. Um, but then uh, all of that money, though, uh gets then a lot or at least much of it gets put into uh weapons development activities uh that are sanctioned by the united nations or or have individual sanctions say from the united states government or or say the japanese or korean government um you know if they're you know generating revenue or stealing money and then it gets put into ballistic missile development or nuclear weapons development that's supposed to be sanctioned activity uh and so that's where also it gets kind of messy because you look at what should just be law enforcement uh, activity that then gets into more of an international relations foreign policy type activity because now you they're funding uh, uh, weapons programs that threaten uh, South Korea, the United States, Japan, uh, and really sort of regional and global security. Uh, so I do think that we do need to think about punishing activities or, or punishing responses to this, um, particularly if you can, you know, trace and, and make a clear connection here to uh, the WMD programs, to the ballistic missile programs. Um, but uh, so while I say I think we we should and the USROK Alliance should think about how to, to punish this activity, uh, it's much harder than to think of what would be punishing enough to stop North Korea from doing it. Mm. Um, certainly some sort of, uh, you know, threatening the life of Kim Jong-un sounds like it would be punishing enough, but it also sounds so destabilizing and so escalatory that we probably wouldn't consider it. Uh, but so if, and if you're just going to do cyber attacks in, in response, um, North Korea is, uh, in a way, uh, a uniquely vulnerable and invulnerable country because they don't have much internet connection. Uh, they don't have much, relatively much connection with uh, the rest of the world. Um, so a cyber attack on them maybe seems like it's not going to really hurt them. Mm-hmm. But if you can find the particular node that, say, is uh, informing the leadership or that they use for their targeting systems, uh, if you can get access to that, maybe that's going to be uh, uh, punishing enough. Uh, or if we get a little more creative to think about punishing, that's not just uh, attacking someone or something. Uh, say a punishing response uh, is a 
broader information campaign uh, against North Korea, against the North Korean government. Uh, and this could be a broader information campaign to get information inside to North Korea, uh, to, to empower North Korean people with, with more information about the outside world uh, and what their, their government is doing. Um, and, and, you know, North Korea is very sensitive to this. This is why they have such strong information controls on their own population, uh, why there's all this, uh, both in their penal code and anecdotal evidence of how they uh, punish people who watch, uh, you know, South Korean dramas, listen to South Korean pop music. Um, and so we could think of maybe ways that this is our punishing response, that, you know, North Korea, if you don't... Uh, stop this uh, criminal activity, uh, the financial criminal activity that we have traced to your WMD programs. Um, we will we will institute more of this type of information uh, campaign against against you. Um, now I don't maybe maybe this is not like talked about uh, publicly, but of course if there's an increased flow of information in North Korea, they're probably going to think it's coming from uh, the South or, or coming from uh, the United States. Uh, maybe that's what they could view as uh, a punishment that is not acceptable to them. Okay. That that really threatens their society and their the government's control on the society there. Uh, but you know, I mean, uh, as as I'm sure you know, even even some of these uh, measures become controversial uh, in South Korea, like with the uh, the the anti leaflet law. Uh, you know, where they, they would send the balloons up into North Korea with, with leaflets and other like USB drives on them. Um, <clears throat> and, and that was, uh, was that 2021, the, the National Assembly passed a law against doing that um, because North Korea responds very aggressively to these things. Uh, the response, in my opinion, shows that they really don't like it. Um, and so then a concern for South Korea is that how much do you push it? How far do you push it before you think, well, is North Korea actually going to say uh, fire back? You know, if they, because they say we're going to shoot down the balloons or, uh, you know, take other action against South Korea, uh, is, is pushing more information in North Korea worth a potential, uh, say, artillery response from North Korea? Um, that. So while I think this is a viable punishment option, it still comes with these escalatory risks um, that, of course, publics in South Korea, the United States, Japan, all get a say in uh, how aggressively we we try to push this. Well, that was also the answer to my follow-up question. So thank you for reading my mind on that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's just me talking too long. <laughs> no, no, no. I is this is very enlightening. Thank you very much. Please feel free to do so. Um, you you. We're also predicting my next question as well. I also wanted to address uh, a strategy of deter deterrence by denial as well. Mm -hmm. So according to many experts we have on this, I say particularly Joseph Nye, he says that the main issue of deterrence by denial in cyberspace is attribution. So would this be as big a concern if there is a USRK cyber deterrence policy that is made specifically against uh, North Korea, if they're able to, uh, like you mentioned, trace their activities back to funding their weapons development, would that be as big of an issue? Um, 
Well, I would first say, I think uh, attribution is, is probably a bigger issue for punishment because you need mm -hmm. to know which country or which organization conducted the attack in order to deliver a punishing response. If you're not sure it was North Korea and you punish North Korea, and then it turns out it was, say, Venezuela, uh, organization of Venezuela, uh, then you sort of uh, you really damage your own credibility and you know risk escalation in one area. Uh, but with denial, uh, some things with denial are um, sort of uh, attribution agnostic. So if you just have good cybersecurity practices, good resilience, you know, you've got uh, even down to us individual users, we have good cybersecurity practices. Uh, we don't respond to say North Korean phishing campaigns. Uh, we we maintain good uh, cybersecurity practices. Maybe our organizations that we work for uh, have resilience that they put in to sort of deny this. That, that doesn't really matter who is doing it, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a state or just kind of general cyber hacker uh, or criminal activity uh, that can um, deny all of that. Um, now, a problem with that is, at least from a deterrence perspective, is a lot of that type of, say, phishing attacks or, or phishing campaigns. It's not really an attack, but a phishing campaign. Uh, it's so low cost. Uh, you know, a North Korean cyber operator can just set up a bot to start phishing people. And uh even if they don't respond to it the cost of doing this was so low um and maybe what they were trying to get out of it was kind of so low value that uh they just keep doing it uh until maybe on the millionth attempt they finally get one uh so that is a challenge with denial of the these low level attacks it, the the higher level ones though you're going to have to sort of withstand a sustained really strong attack on, on probably critical infrastructure, uh, or even if it takes it down, you need to be able to recover uh, quickly from it and get, it, get the system back online. Uh, now, I also think, uh, again, if we think about uh, what is North Korea trying to do? Uh, so a lot of, we, we talked about a lot of their criminal activity, uh, that they're trying to just generate revenue, get money uh, to fund other, uh, my military programs or programs for the leadership. Um, but a general goal of North Korean strategy is to divide the US and ROK. So to really stress the alliance uh, and particularly, I think, to get one of the allies to back away from the security commitment. Maybe it's to get the United States to sort of back away from uh, uh, guaranteeing, you know, or, or following through on its uh, a treaty commitment to South Korea. Uh, so we can have denial that's ways like just making our cybersecurity practices better. Uh, but we can also have denial uh, of this goal. If, if North Korea is doing cyber attacks to try and wedge or split the US and South Korea, maintaining strong alliance relationships is a way to deny that. Because uh, you you're denying the strategic goal that North Korea is trying to do with it. Uh, so, you know, if North Korea is trying to cause uh, alliance friction by, uh, say, hacking uh, South Korean Ministry of National Defense networks or USFK networks, um, or, you know, say if they conducted cyber attacks against U.S. soldiers based in South Korea, 
or even against their family members who are based there as a way to try and stress the alliance, make, say, the U.S. or South Korea think that maybe this alliance uh, is actually detrimental to our national security. Uh, that's what they're trying. That would be one thing that North Korea is trying to do. So if we maintain good relations, uh, good coordination, that can be a way to deny that. Uh, the attacks are still going to be annoying uh, and potentially painful, uh, but kind of keeping on the same page and main, keeping strong uh, can can deny that benefit. Uh, so, it's, you know, North Korea, it's not just that they're trying to get, say, your bank account information. They're trying then to get you to say to, to your leadership, hey, maybe we should reduce our presence in South Korea, U.S., uh, because look at what's happening to me and and my colleagues here. Mm. Um, so that that's really, I think, where the alliance can become a denial measure. Mm, I see. So in regards to the U.S.-ROK alliance, um, there have been some, a bit of friction from what I have seen regarding that alliance with some statements that have been made by the South Korean president, President Yoon. He mentioned that uh, he was considering a nuclear option maybe about a month ago, as well as South Korea also issued its first independent cyber sanctions against North Korea recently as well. So these types of independent movements and these types of statements that are being made at a national level, could that also be... Uh, could that also impact the way that the U.S. ROK alliance is in approaching North Korea? Because as you mentioned, that could be the most um, the the one of the strongest ways to de uh, deny to deter against North Korean attacks. Could that be what North Korea is wanting? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think. Uh... North Korea wouldn't welcome uh, South Korea developing its own nuclear weapons, but um, I, I think so. I'm just going to go with obviously what all I know is what's publicly said uh, by President Yoon. Um, the nuclear issue. Uh, uh, I'll, let me talk about that in a second. But so about so South Korea doing their own cyber sanctions. Uh, I think that that's fine. Uh, in particular, I, I'm going to assume that that's coordinated with the United States. Um, and actually, the United States uh, in the past uh, has requested that you know our allies, like in the region, Japan, South Korea, Australia, um, to to also enforce sanctions against North Korea. In addition to say the United Nations Security Council sanctions. The U.S. government has put individual sanctions on, and we've also then you know, tried to coordinate, uh, say, Japan uh, with the uh, North Korean. Uh, I'm blanking on it, uh, but you know, the, with among the Zainichi, uh, like Chosen Soren, uh, in North mm -hmm. in, in Japan to sanction that organization, uh, and we've also encouraged South Korea to do this. So I think as long as they're coordinated, this is all good. Uh, it's something that the United States wants. The United States generally. Uh, where its allies can, they want allies to contribute uh, to uh, sort of the same strategy that the U.S. sees for it. Uh, uh, neither side, of course, likes surprise. Uh, you know, in, in alliances, you don't like surprise. And this goes both ways, right? Uh, you don't, uh, South Korea, say, in the 1970s, was surprised when uh, 
President Nixon decided to withdraw a division, uh, an army division from South Korea. Um, these types of things, uh, you know, can be uh, maybe difficult to accept, but if you coordinate them in advance and try and talk through it, uh, they can be good. Uh, so South Korea taking more independent action can be good. Um, uh, developing their own nuclear weapons uh, is, of course, a, a, I think, a, a sort of a different issue because it's a whole nother level of South Korean independent action. Mm. Um, and I obviously, I think uh, the U.S. preference is for South Korea not to do that. But uh, uh, and I don't think President Yoon was really explicitly saying that South Korea uh, would seriously consider this, mm. um, the, you know, it, Partly, I think it's it just maybe it didn't come out quite the way he or his, his administration would have intended it. Um, but it's also the type of thing that I think, if, you know, uh, maybe in, it, it shows some of the natural tension that comes in an alliance, because uh, if you're relying on another country to deter the biggest threat that you see, uh, there is a little natural apprehension of that. You're con you're just constantly relying on somebody else to come in uh, to to help you. And maybe the most comfortable you feel if I can do that myself. So that I think it shows some of the natural tension in that. Uh, again, if this is all well-coordinated, because maybe if President Yoon says something like this and it, you know, it gets kind of the press all worked up, but maybe behind closed doors, uh, the bigger point is, hey, we just need uh, to be involved a little more together. Because uh, then there was a lot of talk about we're gonna do these uh, extended deterrence exercises, because really maybe in the end, that's what the biggest concern was. We just need uh, to be better coordinated, to have a better idea of how this extended deterrence from the United States is going to work and to feel more assured by it. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, if, if it came up tomorrow that South Korean scientists were working on uh, developing nuclear weapons, that of course would be very shocking and alarming for the alliance. Um, but, you know, if these things are sort of talked through on both sides, uh, then you can kind of get through this. Uh, and this, of course, you know, South Korea uh, had a nuclear weapons program in the 1970s. Mm. It was a different time, obviously, but uh, it didn't break the alliance. Uh, we're able to, to work through that kind of uh, based on the, the politics at the time. Um, but uh, I think, again, I'll go back to just in the alliance, you don't like surprises. You you want to know what both sides are going to do or what all sides are going to do. Uh, and so I, I do think the alliance is in a better place than it was, say, in the 1970s, uh, and that we're probably better able to talk through these types of things. Uh, and, and again, I think it's very understandable for South Koreans to say, hey, North Korea is increasing their capability. How are we going to deal with this? And so you really want to talk to uh, the United States about how are we going to deal with this and not just talk, but like, let's go show how we're going to deal with this. All right. Thank you very much for your insight about that, Dr. Platty, as well. I do have one more question, but I'm afraid that we are running out of time. So I think I might have to save that for another time as well. Uh, I'd okay. like to thank you again. <laughs> I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Platty, for joining me today and taking time out of your day to to talk to me about this issue. Um, oh, no, no, it was it was my pleasure. And, and uh, hopefully get a chance to talk again. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Um, let me go ahead and stop the recording.